Good morning. Hey, I got to let you know right out of the gate, um, I lost my voice this last Tuesday for about 24 hours, so I think we're going to make it through this together. Uh, if I lose my voice, I'll just trust that that's God's spirit letting us all know that I'm done. Huh? How about that? Natural timer this morning. So um, I also want to mention to you, obviously we're not in the book of Exodus this morning. Uh, we're taking today and next week to look at two parables, two stories that Jesus taught, both of which come in the last seven days of Jesus' life, a period of time that we know as Holy Week. Uh, and so today is what the global Christian church typically recognizes as Palm Sunday. The reason that we call it Palm Sunday is because when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem at the very end of his ministry, people were um, rejoicing. They were worshiping him as the Messiah, as the fulfillment of an Old Testament office that God had promised somebody would come and fulfill for a long time. And part of that was waving palm branches at him, just sort of a cultural show of respect. Um, if your family celebrates that way, that's great. I've never been a part of something like that, but that's why we call it Palm Sunday, is because the palm branches were waved as Jesus entered into the city. And so um, I want to give us a, an opportunity to kind of orient around what Holy Week is, because we are shifting gears out of the book of Exodus, which is uh, very much an Old Testament story dealing with the very beginnings of God's people, whereas Jesus takes that um, fully formed people of God in the physical sense and he applies uh, the blessings that God has given to those people to all people who believe in him. So he's really breaking wide open the idea that anybody can be a part of what God is doing. Um, but I want to shift gears a little bit. So I have a, actually a calendar that we can see. If you guys have a second, um, we should be able to put it up on the screen. I hope you can actually read that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, I'm not going to read all the way through this, but... Palm Sunday is actually arguably like the third day in this sort of nine-day process where Jesus is working up to his own crucifixion. And uh, if you're like me and you grew up in a church, you probably heard lots of different parts of the four Gospels taught kind of in a random order throughout the year. And it can be challenging, even with the Bibles that we have today, to read all the way through and really grasp the gravity of what's happening. And so uh, probably the Friday or Saturday before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus came into a town called Bethany. And Bethany is where three people you've probably heard of before live. Um, Mary and Martha, they are sisters, and they have a brother named Lazarus who actually died, and Jesus brought him back to life. And so we don't know for sure that Jesus stayed in their home, uh, but he probably did because they were good friends and he had stayed there before. Up to this point in Jesus' life, Bethany is the closest that Jesus has gotten to Jerusalem. And so for him to come into town, there's a lot of people in Jerusalem. You can kind of imagine if, I don't know, if the President of the United States came to visit or somebody famous uh, visited and they decided they were going to stay in Girdwood and they were just going to drive into Anchorage every day to do their meetings and stuff. There might be some Anchorageites who would grab their cameras and drive out to Girdwood and try to catch the president skiing or hiking or whatever. Um, this is the same thing that's happening to Jesus in Bethany. A big crowd approaches him there. And a lot of people have even followed him from Galilee. And so that turns into Sunday. He comes into the city and he scouts the temple. Uh, the book of Mark tells us that Jesus went into the temple briefly, he looked around, he had not visited prior to that point since he was a little boy, and he leaves. He goes back to Bethany for the night. The next day, Tuesday, excuse me, Monday, uh, is when he actually turns the tables over. So you've heard that story before probably. Everybody who's ever been angry feels like they have to use that as a reason that they can be angry, right? Jesus made a whip. Jesus flipped tables over. Maybe not the best application, but it is true he did do that. So he does that in the temple. He causes mayhem, really, for those people. And then he leaves and goes back to Bethany again. And then Tuesday is where the story that we just heard read aloud, what we're going to be looking at today, that's where that happens. And Tuesday, aside from the day that Jesus died on the cross, I would argue this Tuesday of Holy Week is probably the longest day of Jesus' life. 
It's miserable. It takes Matthew three chapters to tell these stories. And in these chapters, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, you can think of them as just the religious elite. They attack Jesus over and over again. Why? Because this is the first time he's come into their house and played his game. So they feel like they have home court advantage finally. They can take out this guy politically. They're not planning to kill him as of Tuesday. That does change on Wednesday. But on Tuesday, they try to get him to say something publicly so he'll compromise himself. They're kind of like baiting him on Twitter is how you can think about that. They're like, they're, you know, they're adding him a lot and, and he answers it. Like a lot of people stay out of their own mentions, but Jesus gets into it and they can't cancel him. They can't get him to say anything that, that gets them in trouble. And the place that we read, what we're going to look at again in a second, he actually starts to spin this back at them a little bit. And it's not because he's combative, it's because he wants to help everybody who's watching this argument understand that the Pharisees don't actually know what they're talking about. So that's Tuesday. All day long they attack him and they argue with him and different groups of them try to sneak up on him. And he finally puts it all to rest. Uh, in Matthew chapter 22, Matthew says that finally people stopped questioning Jesus. And that seems like good news, but that's because on Wednesday they decided to have this meeting where they're going to have him killed. Like, yeah, they figured out that they weren't going to be able to trick him. They couldn't argue him into a position where he would compromise himself. And so they have to just get rid of him the old-fashioned way, I guess. And I'll just tell you, you and I are used to this idea, right? We get to Holy Week, we get to Palm Sunday, we get to Easter, and we go, Jesus has to die. We know this. We celebrate it in many ways. Even though it's the greatest tragedy in human history, really in all of creative history, that God had to die, it's also the most triumphant moment of our creator going from just a creator to being a redeemer, which is a beautiful and glorious thing for him. But... In the life of the people of Israel, especially in the lives of these religious elite, this is a big deal in the plot of this story. This is sort of a turning point. And so one of two things is happening here. Either these religious elite people have been pushed to a point that they are willing to consider homicide, which should show you the gravity of the offense that they're taking from Jesus' words. When we read the story we're going to read today, this isn't Jesus like having sort of like a... a back and forth discussion with an ideological opponent. He is challenging the existence of these men, their, their subsistence, their ability to feed their families, their social standing and culture, even their jobs, they think. And really he wants to redeem those things, but they feel like he's there to tear them down. So either that, either they have to embrace homicide, which is sort of unprecedented, or the other option, which is probably worse, is these guys are sort of a religious mafia and they're used to having these meetings on Wednesdays where they decide what to do with their opponents both of which are very dark options. And I don't want you to be so used to the story today that you just are sort of numb and you go, well, they're the bad guys and bad guys kill good guys and so this is the way that it goes. These are men who have studied God's word their whole life and have reached a point where they are so numb to God's presence that their response to him is to kill him. That's what they want to do. Thursday is Passover. Jesus speaks to his disciples a final time in the upper room in Jerusalem they're still confused. They don't get it at all, even though he takes like an hour and a half to talk to them. They don't understand. He takes them into the Garden of Gethsemane, and then sometime probably right after midnight, Jesus is betrayed. He's arrested. He goes to court twice in less than 24 hours, first before the Jewish religious elite, the people who set this whole thing up for him, but they can't pin anything on him because he won't open his mouth, right? If people are trying to get you to tweet bad stuff so you can get in trouble, a great thing to do is delete your Twitter. That's Jesus' strategy. He just was like, I got nothing to say to you guys. You can accuse me of whatever you want. I know I'm innocent. In this time, his disciples totally abandon him, and the Jewish people find their strategy so inept that they have to take Jesus before the Roman government to justify his execution, what I would call his assassination. And they're able to manipulate Pilate in that setting, and Jesus does die. 
He is crucified. He hangs there for more than an hour. He dies and he's buried. And then he comes back on Easter, and that's what we'll celebrate next week. But what I want you to understand is in the course of any of the four Gospels that you read, the pacing changes a lot. And we don't know that because we grew up as kids reading storybooks where like everything happens at the same rate the whole time. In the Gospels, especially the beginning of anyone, we'll pick Matthew as an example because that's what we're in today. The beginning of Matthew, whole months can happen between chapters. And, and Matthew doesn't let you know that. He's not like, and then for seven or eight weeks, we just did normal stuff and walked around, and then Jesus taught. He just sort of jumps from vignette to vignette, and a lot of time passes at the beginning. When we get to about Matthew chapter 20, 18 to 20, the pace slows down so that we can magnify, we can zoom in on Jesus' life. And, and what we're going to read this morning, what you heard read aloud already, comes at the most contentious and combative time in Jesus' ministry. It is heavy for Jesus. And the specific account we are going to read comes on the heels of Jesus having overturned the tables in the temple, having offended all of these people in a way that they think is irreparable, and the Sanhedrin, the religious elite, go after him, and you see his response. So I want to give you two ideas, two points that I think Jesus makes to his opponents today that are going to be applicable to you and I as well. The first is this, that for the spiritually impure, moral excellence is meaningless. For the spiritually impure, moral excellence is meaningless. And then second, for the self-righteous, grace is excruciating. Deeply, deeply painful. Okay, so Jesus comes back into the temple on Tuesday. He takes a two-mile walk into town. He walks all the way from the edges of the city to the very middle, the highest point where the temple sits. There's probably broken bits and pieces of wood still laying on the stones from yesterday where tables were turned over and money was spilled and a whip was made. And it's into this setting that Jesus begins to communicate and teach again. And Matthew recalls it happening like this. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 23. And when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. So they're interrupting him. Don't miss that. And they said to Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So they're not questioning what he's teaching. They're trying to undermine him specifically, personally. They want to get Jesus to say either he's unaffiliated with any religious party and therefore he's sort of, it's easy for us to dismiss him and ignore him. Or they want him to claim the authority of somebody that they know full well did not give him that authority, and therefore, in their culture, they can frame him and actually have him arrested. Like if I went into the temple and said, I am here teaching with the authority of the chief priests, and the chief priests didn't tell me that, well, they can go and have the Romans arrest me. It's that there's kind of a theocratic thing happening here in this government system. And so Jesus is asked this question, and he answers them with his own question, very Hebrew of him. Jesus said, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. So here's a little bit of an exchange happening. Here's his question, verse 25. The baptism of John, who's also known as John the Baptist, he's the John featured in the first two chapters of the book of John, a guy who ends up getting killed just like Jesus did, except John gets his head cut off in the middle of his ministry. Jesus says, the baptism of John, where did it come from? In other words, he's asking the Pharisees the same question they've asked him just about John. Instead, he's saying, what about John? Where did he get his authority from? Who told him he could do those things? Did it come from heaven, implying that it's from God the Father, or did it come from man, which would mean that it's probably illegitimate? 
Now, they discussed it among themselves. So they have a little powwow here, a little huddle. They get together with their PR team, okay? And they say, if we say from heaven, which is probably the truth for some of them, then he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? Why didn't you stand up to Herod and Herod's wife when they had John's head cut off if he was truly a prophet from God, right? That's a good question, verse 26. But if we say his authority, the authority of John came from man, that he's just a guy who made this up and decided to do it on his own, well, then we are afraid of the crowd. I doubt that they said it exactly like that, but they're looking around. Jesus knows what's going on. For the crowd all hold that John was a prophet. Remember, they interrupted Jesus. It's not just Jesus standing in a corner in the courtyard. He's got a big group of people around him, and these Pharisees run in and go, hey, 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 who told you you could do this? So the people are watching. People are like ready for this. They probably heard about the mayhem yesterday. They came by the temple on their way to work just to see what's going to go down this morning, and they're getting what they came for. Here we go. Jesus and the Pharisees one-on-one, okay? So they say that they can't say that he was from man because the crowd will revolt. They'll freak out because they think that John is a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, we do not know, which isn't true. They all have an opinion. They all know what they think. They based the decisions that they made around John's death on their opinion. Jesus answered them and said, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. For the spiritually impure, moral excellence is meaningless. So in verses 25 and 26, the religious leaders put their heads together to brainstorm a believable lie, right? And I think it's interesting that there's no discussion of what they really think at all. Not one of them stops and says, are we going to compromise ourselves if we tell a lie in front of all of these people who follow us? No, this is normal for them. This is typical. Their knee-jerk reaction is to put their heads together and craft an answer separate and regardless from what is true that keeps them in power and authority. This is what I mean when I say spiritually impure. These men were the most ceremonially and physically and morally clean and excellent people in the history of the world. They got it right all the time. Unfortunately, in their hearts, they were totally disconnected from the character of a person who knows God and who loves God. Totally disconnected. If they hadn't been, they would have received John the Baptist and Jesus for the prophets that they were. Now, what I want you to just grasp for a second, because we can lose this in the course of this narrative, is these bad guys, these religious leaders, are still human beings. So just like Jesus confronted many people in his ministry and then invited them to repent, the woman at the well, Nicodemus in John 3, all 12 of his disciples, big crowds of people when he fed the 5,000 and some of them stayed while a lot of them went home, Jesus is giving them a chance to be honest. He's not just tricking them with his question. He's really trying to see, are you going to connect with me here? Are you going to meet me here? And are you going to really tell me the truth? Because if you will, then that means that we're being honest with each other and I can answer your question. But if we're just playing games, I'm not going to give you more gas to throw on the fire. No way. Isn't it interesting that not one of these religious leaders stepped away from the rest of the group and said, you know what, Jesus, we're we're trying to trick you. I'm sorry. You're right, and and we shouldn't be doing this. And I, I repent, and I'd really like to be maybe like the 13th disciple, if that's still a position that's open. Like, is there a way I could get connected with what you're doing, follow you, love you, be saved by you? No, none of them do that. Why? Because they have almost a sixth sense of automatic self-preservation. They are so selfish that they cannot imagine losing an inch of moral ground that they have gained in their society. Even as they interact with the Savior of the world, they are always looking for an angle, an opportunity to spin the conversation their own way. And because not one of them is willing to interact with Jesus honestly, he refuses to meet them there. But I want to just warn you quickly about your interpretation of this story, because we like conflict. 
Not all of us do. Some of us like conflict. We especially like it on the internet, even though a lot of the conflict we cause is like taking shots at people that we think are making a big deal out of stuff that doesn't matter, and then they fight back, and nothing changes. But we like that, and we like a good argument, and we like knowing how to win a good argument, don't we? Jesus is not combative here, and I think it would be tempting to read this and go, yeah, Jesus, put them in their place. That's right. You show them. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, there is a moment where he meets with another person who's a part of the religious elite, where I think he shows his hand in Matthew 21. He explains to us, by example, why he won't go any deeper with the Pharisees. Um, If you don't know John chapter 3, it's the story of a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is kind of a small-time religious leader. He He's out kind of outside of Jerusalem, maybe in what we would think of as a suburb of the city or even kind of like the bush, several days travel away. And he comes to Jesus in the night because he's scared that his reputation will get damaged if people know that he's meeting with this new man who's very controversial. In the course of the conversation that they have in John chapter 3, Jesus explains that if you want to be a part of what God is doing, Jesus refers to this as God's kingdom over and over again in his ministry. If you want to be in God's kingdom, then you have to be born a second time. And this blows Nicodemus' mind. I mean, things immediately go off the rails. He asks one of the most wild questions in Scripture. He's like, you mean i got to find my mom, and i got to go back in, and then come back out? And Jesus doesn't laugh in the Bible, but he must have been chuckling in his head, because that's wild. No, Nicodemus, you're a grown man. I'm not saying that to you. That's not what I mean at all. Please don't do that. Please don't tell anybody. It's probably good that we met at night. This is really not going the way I thought it was going to. Right? So he explains to Nicodemus that it has to do with rebirth on a spiritual level. So what does he mean by that? He means that if you want to be spiritually pure, which is what every religious elite person was supposed to be pursuing, that was the idea anyway, if you want to be spiritually pure, then that begins with giving away your self-righteousness, the life that you've lived on your own, and receiving a new life, being born of God, not just of flesh, of people. Nicodemus, he, he responds in this way. I want you to hear this from John chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, okay? He asked some questions, and and sorry, I I misspoke. Jesus responds to Nicodemus' question by saying this in verse 10. He said, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. Jesus, that we is him and his disciples, because that's who Nicodemus is challenging. Jesus is saying, we're talking about things we've seen. We're talking about obvious things, that the kingdom of heaven is here, that the poor can enter the kingdom of heaven, that anybody can be saved, that the gospel's for all people. We speak of what we know, and we bear witness of what we have seen. In other words, the disciples are only telling stories that they've seen firsthand. They're not trying to propagate some kind of religious myth. They were there when I I walked on water. They were there when I brought people back to life. They were there when I turned water into wine. If I have told you, Nicodemus, earthly things, and you do not believe me, how then can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? There's the key to understanding Matthew chapter 21. Jesus is not just putting his ideological opponents in their place. Jesus understands that if the most basic level of human interaction, which is predicated on the trust that you're gonna probably tell me the truth, right? I have to kind of go through my life assuming that or I'm gonna be paranoid all the time. If these Pharisees in chapter 21 of Matthew can't even meet Jesus there to be honest, then the same question stands for them that he asked Nicodemus. If you don't believe earthly things, if you won't even engage with me, how can I actually answer the question that you're asking? What Jesus understands is because of the spiritual impurity in these religious elite, no answer that he gives them is going to change anything for them because they're not really listening. They don't really want to know where his authority comes from. They want to find out what he thinks. They want to spin that in a way where they can trap him and then they want to get rid of him. That's all they want. Understand, please, if you can, 
that these people, these religious elite, were living the life that many of us as Christians are trying to live to like the 10th power. They were taking religious obedience to God's law to its most extreme position to the point that they had lost any grasp of mercy, of forgiveness, of love for anybody but themselves. All they were doing was climbing a different ladder to their own self-righteousness, to their own achievements, to their own success. They just happened to do it in a system where success looked like being religiously elite. So Jesus isn't just trying to put them in their place. I believe that Jesus pastorally cares about their hearts and cares about the hearts of the people that he was teaching when he was interrupted. And so he's not going to get into this silly engagement in front of all of them that could mislead the people who were there. He's going to cut to the heart of the issue. And I think when they ask him the question, then refuse to answer it, Jesus realizes that whatever teaching he was just doing, maybe doesn't need to finish. What this crowd of people actually need to hear is how easy it is to speak like you love God and you're following him and do absolutely nothing about that. So I'll say it to you again. For the spiritually impure, moral excellence is meaningless. Jesus is getting ready to tell these Pharisees that they are spiritually bankrupt. They're demanding that from him by interacting with him, by approaching him, by saying to him, we know better than you, they are forcing him to have to go there. And he's willing to. And yes, it's going to hurt their feelings, and it might hurt ours too. So let's read it. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 28. Jesus turns and he says this. What do you think? Interesting here. The way it's written in Greek implies that Jesus is probably turning to the crowd when he says this. Now, the Pharisees are still there. We know that because they're going to try to come at him again in just a few minutes. But I think he's moving the conversation into the larger gathered group of people to try to see, like, what does the simple person think? The religiously elite are so tangled up in their rules and regulations, they can't even speak honestly. What about the rest of you who came here to see me today? He tells a story. He says, a man had two sons. And the man went to the first son, and he said to him, son, I want you to go, and I want you to work in the vineyard today. It's implied that it's his vineyard, the father's vineyard. And the man answered, and he said, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind, he thought better of it, and he went ahead and went to work in the vineyard. Then the father went to the other son, and he said the same thing. And that son answered him, and in the ESV, it's rendered as, I go, sir. You could read it as, I am going, or I'm on my way. Marty, on my way. Like if you were to swing through your house and yell out to one of your kids or your spouse, Hey, uh, could, you, could you head to the store? We need to grab a couple things before dinner tonight. And they shouted back, yep, already on my way. I'm putting my shoes on right now. Right? Like they're communicating, I'm already on track to do this. I'm headed that direction. You're not going to sit there and probably watch them and babysit them, unless they're like six years old, and you might have to do that. But if they're a grown-up, right, you're going to go, okay, cool. They said they were going to go. They'll take care of that. No big deal. So he says, I go, sir, but, very important, he did not go. Which of the two, Jesus is asking the crowd and the Pharisees, which of these two sons actually did the will of his father? what do you think that crowd of people said? It was the first one, right? I mean, there's almost an implied, duh, Jesus, what are you talking about? One guy was sitting in the same place his father found him at the end of the day. The other guy was dirty because he worked in the vineyard. Like, it's easy to know who worked and who didn't work. Why are we talking about this? Jesus answers that implied question. He says, I'm telling you the truth. Why does he have to say I'm telling you the truth? Because this is challenging, and it sounds like maybe it's not the truth, but it is. So listen, he says, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors who are bad people in this society and the prostitutes, who are typically seen as bad people in every society, are going into the kingdom of God before you or in front of you. I'm just going to say that to you again. 
Jesus is speaking to the most ceremonially clean people on the face of the planet in all of human history, and he says to them, he has the audacity to say to them, the worst people in your society are ahead of you in line to get into God's kingdom. How does he know this? He comes back to the question they asked about John. He says, because John came to you in the way of righteousness. What John did, nobody can really argue with. If you knew John, John is Jesus' cousin. Jesus knows who he's talking about here. He's like, if you knew my cousin John, nobody questions that guy's integrity. He never asked for anything. He never hurt anybody. All he did was walk through the wilderness, share God's word, and give the same people you are beating down, you Pharisees, he gave them hope for the first time in their lives. Yet you did not believe him. But the tax collectors did, and the prostitutes did, and even when you saw it, not just heard what he said, even when you saw that what he said was true, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So you want to talk about who's got what authority, Pharisees? You don't even care about that. Ask me a question you really want an answer to. If you're going to come to me, I'm God in the flesh, you want to understand the way the world works, ask me a real question. Because what I can tell you is the person that you're picking on knows more and has a better understanding of eternity than the guy whose head you cut off because you didn't like his teaching. Of course they're combative, right? They're going to kill him in three days. They may not know that yet. There's probably a couple of them that are thinking at this point that's the only way this gets better for us. Jesus is communicating to them that the spiritual impurity in their lives means that their moral excellence is meaningless to God and essentially to them. It gets them nowhere. It's just a more polite path to destruction. It's nicer. It doesn't make as many people upset as they head to eternal damnation because they're full of their own selves and have no interest in Jesus. The religious leaders have already shown us that they're impure, if for no other reason than that they're liars who will say what they have to in order to appease popular opinion. But Jesus takes it a step further than their small lies. In verse 30, just in case this didn't jump off the page at you, Jesus does not accuse them of being wrong. I think they would have liked that because they could have argued with him. Instead, he accuses them of having done nothing. And that hurts worse. Right and wrong, these are categories they can participate in, that they think through. This is their lens for the world no matter what. Jesus comes to them and disqualifies the right and wrong by simply saying, you're doing nothing. You're just sitting in the same place I found you. When I approached you and said, go and do the work in the vineyard, get to work after God's kingdom, go do what God has told you to do, be obedient, you said, I'm on my way. I'll be there soon. Like, hey, I'm just pulling in the parking lot. Save me a seat. And then I waited, and I watched you, and you didn't do anything. You haven't taken a step. Now, why is that challenging to these people? Because nobody is busier than a Pharisee. Nobody gets more stuff done than a Sadducee. The priests and the high priests have their days ordered every 30 minutes, seven days a week. So the idea that Jesus is implying to them that they have done nothing is existential for them. It's the same reason that I think Nicodemus in John 3 doesn't actually reach a point of repentance that we can see. Because what Jesus is saying is it's not about getting it right, it's about getting it all from me. Totally different conversation. It's not about how right you can be, it's not about how much wrong you can avoid, it's about whether or not you will open-handedly receive grace and mercy from me and then show it to other people. That's the beginning. That's the only starting point for spiritual purity. And then you can grow into moral excellence that's actually helpful to other people, that isn't combative, that isn't abrasive, that doesn't give the church a horrible reputation because of how it's abused power and manipulated people in Jesus' name. 
Instead, you could be known for self-sacrifice, like I am, is what Jesus is thinking. You could be known for giving your life away, for turning the other cheek when you're attacked, for laying down your rights in the name of other people seeing what mercy and grace and forgiveness look like. Go figure, huh? But instead, you just sat there. You've done nothing. All of their moral excellence, all of their physical purity, every time they take down a religious or political opponent with some ironclad argument, if they are not spiritually pure, if they've not been made new by Jesus, then they have done nothing for God. So I just want to let the implications of that reality sit on you for a minute. Because when Jesus says he's the way, he's not kidding. He's not one way. He's the way. He's the only way. You don't get there without him. You never will. You can try. A lot of people have. You will be miserable the rest of your life, and you'll hate coming here. It'll, oh, it'll give you anxiety. Every Saturday night, you'll start to think, oh my gosh, I got to go there, and I got to sit under all that stuff, and I'm so wrong, and nobody knows me, and I don't want to tell the truth, and I don't want to repent, and it would cost me too much to be honest about my past, and you'll just stay the same. Two chapters later, Jesus calls these Pharisees whitewashed tombs. He says literally in Greek, you are dirty used plates that have been washed on the outside and are filthy on the inside. If that ain't the story of American Christian religiosity, I don't know what is, man. Whitewash yourself, and then you'll fit in here. But don't do anything about your heart, right? That would hurt too much. That would be too damaging. It would cost you too much. I'll tell you what it cost Jesus. Everything. And he was willing to pay that price for you to pave the way for you. That's the gospel. That's why Palm Sunday is Palm Sunday, because he is the king he said he was, even though he died and none of us would have expected it. And the very people who killed him are the people he died for. The, the, the prescription he is making here is something he will fulfill on his own alone. And all he is telling these Pharisees and you and me is we have to look to him and receive from him the mercy that he's going to purchase in about 72 hours. And the irony is he'll do it as part of a plot that makes these Pharisees think they're finally getting what they want and they have no idea that they're participating in God's master plan to save the universe. Church, it is not the moral doing that brings people into God's kingdom. It is not self-improvement. It's not marital bliss. It's not well-behaved children. It's not some eloquent defense of whatever religious or cultural or political soapbox you may find yourself on. None of those things gain us entry into God's kingdom. We can have them all in abundance and we can still be spiritually impure. We can be just as bad as all of the sinners that we like to label and point our fingers at. We can't make ourselves clean. It is believing that clocks us in for a work day in God's kingdom. That's what Jesus says in verse 32. You saw John. Now you see me. You still don't believe. It's that disbelief, it's that refusal to allow me to invade your world that keeps you fully separate from me and what I'm doing. Jesus is talking about faith, and that faith comes by grace, freely and without merit. Jesus describes God's kingdom as a place that is built on grace. And nothing is more threatening to the self-righteous than grace. That's our second point. It's where we'll land the plane today. For the self-righteous, grace is excruciating. Oh, it hurts so bad. And not just for you to be forgiven, but when God forgives other people that you don't want to forgive, that's when grace really hurts. When Jesus says, I'm already here. I've already moved into this person's life. Like, I'm, I'm working. I'm good. Why don't you come on over here and reconnect? And you're like, oh, Jesus, don't you know what they did? Jesus is like, yeah, in a way you never will. <laughs> so let's try this together. Let's be forgiving. Jesus' words, I think, hurt the religious party 
bad enough that they fuel his own murder. I mean, I think this is the turning point, truly. I really believe that they thought they could take him down, they could attack him politically, they could get him to compromise himself, and that would be the end. But the idea that he can forgive whom he wants and that the kingdom of God is predicated on grace is so deeply offensive to them that they decide they have to get rid of Jesus right now. And when Jesus speaks to them, he's not just speaking to them, he's speaking to us. If we call ourselves followers of Jesus, if we call ourselves disciples, Jesus expects us to extend the same grace that we ourselves have received. Being gracious is one of the ways that we know that we've gone from knowing some things about grace to having received it. Because when grace is received, it's very easy to give. It becomes easier and easier to give. It grows in us. But what do we do when people who have deeply hurt us start to come back around? Or people who have deeply hurt those that we love? What happens when we meet Jesus and then he sends people back into our lives who we don't want to forgive or who we just thought we'd never really have to? I can tell you from experience, it's excruciating. I apologized to you just a few minutes ago at the beginning of this for my voice. Um, I'm not sick. I lost my voice on Tuesday from screaming, uh, just as loud as I could. I was so angry, and I want to tell you about that. Um, On Tuesday afternoon, I got a call from my wife, Andy, I didn't scream at her, don't worry, spoiler for you, things are okay. Um, She had become convicted across the last couple of days, about a week and a half, that God really wanted her to call somebody, to reach out to a person from her past who had been present when she underwent some trauma and had really dismissed that trauma and had caused that cut to be deeper than it had to be. And she just felt like it was time to try to raise that issue again. She and that person have both grown some. They've advanced some in maturity. Maybe she could heal if this person could acknowledge what she'd been through and take some responsibility. Um, I thought that call was a bad idea, to be honest with you. I was nervous for her. I wanted to be there with her at the time that it happened, or I wanted her to record it. I wanted her to find a way to to be able to invalidate what the other person said if they came after her, because I expected that. That was kind of the track record up to this point. So when she called me on Tuesday, I was braced for bad news. News. I, I expected her to tell me that she couldn't get through to the person who hurt her, um, that, that things were worse, right? That, that, like I said a second ago, the cut was even deeper than it had been before. And instead of that, she told me that the person who she called apologized to her, that he took responsibility in a way that none of us could have expected that was completely unprecedented. He owned his role in hurting Andy. He communicated to her, even as she was explaining the nuance of her experience, and she said things like, well, I didn't describe it exactly like this, or I didn't use this word that I'm supposed to use. The person she was calling stopped her and said, it doesn't matter. Nobody should have ever done to you what I did to you. Nobody should ever do that to anybody anywhere, and I'm sorry. And I don't even think I realized before today exactly what I was doing in that moment. And so I've got some some thinking to do. I've got some self-searching to do. And church, I'll just tell you, like, as far as we know, this person is not a believer. I mean, this is unprecedented for us. This is the first, these are the first cracks in the facade showing some semblance of light and hope in the life of this person. And when Andy told me that, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I mean that in the literal sense. I was incapable of believing that this was true, to be honest with you. I felt like it must be a trap or that this person would change their mind once they had a chance to sort of pull back and regroup. And I I told Andy that. I told her I really wasn't prepared to celebrate with her. And I was sorry about that. And when I came home that afternoon, I had reached a boiling point inside of myself. Something about this person taking responsibility, something about him admitting the wrong that we have known about for years made it all too real to me. 
It meant that I could no longer interact with this person with this sort of thin veil of benefit of the doubt, but I had to actually understand that that he did what he did, he knew that he did it, and he was owning that, which is in some ways worse. For me, it's harder for me to know what to do with that. And so there I was, I was sitting on the couch while Andy was weeping and rejoicing that she could finally heal, that she could move forward, and I was getting more and more angry inside myself at this person. Because I want to protect her. And and to be honest with you, and this is not a good thing, but I'm going to confess this to you right now, I wanted my hypothetical chance someday to swing on this person. If they ever crossed the line again, I wanted that opportunity to stand up for my wife. I wanted to defend her. So I wanted to scream, and so I did. I got in the car, and I went for a drive, and I screamed myself hoarse because I just felt so angry. And I was confronted with an opportunity to forgive someone and the maturity in my life had sort of calloused itself into self-righteousness to the point that I forgot who I was. I forgot what I had done to wrong God. I forgot what I've done in seven years to wrong my wife. I removed myself from my own sin. Yes, I've been forgiven. Those things still happened. And instead I began to look down my nose at someone else who for the first time possibly in their life was able to repent and to confess. And it broke me. It was excruciating, but it broke me. I felt like forgiving this person would just reopen the door for more damage later. I had wanted to see him pay for his crimes. I wanted to see him experience a little bit of the suffering that Andy and I have carried because of him. But all at once, all the days I've lived with Jesus came back to me, and then I was weeping, because I'm not better than him. I'm almost certainly worse than he is. And Jesus died for me, and, and all Jesus is asking me to do in that moment is to extend a little bit of the forgiveness that he gave me So I prayed and I repented and I told God that I would try to do my part but it wasn't gonna happen without Jesus. So Jesus better be sure about this, this time. Because it was gonna be faith for me to follow him into this forgiveness and I forgave that man. I I mean, honestly, I can tell you that. Even retelling the story, I don't, that fire is out. God fixed that in my life. I forgave him. And then I tried to speak out loud and I realized that I was stupid for screaming to the point that I hurt my voice so that I to put that in God's hands too today and make some tea. So as my self-righteousness leaked away and only Jesus remained, I saw Jesus standing in the temple telling his wayward children that all they had to do was believe and the kingdom would be theirs. And I remembered that I want to be part of offering that kingdom to anybody, even people who've deeply hurt me. So the invitation that I give you today is the same invitation Jesus gave that crowd. It's the same invitation he gave his disciples It's the same way he spoke to those Pharisees. It's an invitation for you, church, part of the evangelical church in these United States, the most affluent, wealthy, self-righteous church on the planet, to walk away from the religious elite and get in the vineyard with Jesus. Whatever he says, just do it. Don't say I'm on my way. I'm going to get there eventually. I definitely meant to. I just forgot. Just go. Just go. You don't have all the tools? Go. You don't feel like you're dressed for work? Go. You don't, you're worried that you're not equipped. You don't know how to be faithful. You're sure you're going to fumble the ball right in front of the goal line. What if you mess up somebody's chance to know Jesus? What if you misrepresent grace and mercy? What I can tell you is that if you are trying to follow Jesus, he'll fix the rest. But you got to go. So church, may God challenge our law-loving, self-righteous, spiritually bankrupt hearts with his grace. And may we be a people who can give that grace as freely as we receive it, even when it hurts us. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you and we trust you to do these things in our lives, our hearts. 
We can't make ourselves better. We've tried. I've tried. God, we try to make our own selves better. We work hard to make other people better. We don't even really know what that means. We just think we know better than them, and we try to fix them and their problems. And uh, what we need to be, God, is messengers, not fixers. We need to be people that can speak about our experience with you. So I pray that you would teach us mercy. Mercy that says, okay, okay, I could hurt you, I could twist your arm, I could make you pay for what you've done to me, and I'm going to choose not to do that. And then I'm going to tell you why. God, guard us. Guard us from this kind of spiritual impurity. Guard us from hearts that love moral excellence so much that we become inoculated to love. We want to be people who give our lives away. Dead to ourselves. We love you. We trust you. And we pray in Jesus' name.